0: You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie, and today we are so excited to welcome Lisa Bird Wilson to talk about her new novel, Probably Ruby. Lisa Bird-Wilson is a Cree Métis writer and poet and the CEO of the Gabriel Dumont Institute of Native Studies, an organization committed to the renewal and development of Métis culture and education. Probably Ruby is her debut novel and her American debut. She lives in Saskatoon, Canada. Thank you so much for being here, Lisa. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Hi. It's great to be here.
0: Did you want to start by reading us a little something?
1: Sure. I have... um... I have a little spot where I like to drop in into the first chapter. And so this is Ruby. She's meeting with her counselor, Cal, at his home office for the first time. And she's really excited about that because she has this big crush on Cal. Um, So I'll just kind of drop you in there. Oh, and the other thing I should say is Cal has an ex-wife and she's taken note of Um, In his house, there are these little glass ornaments all over the place that his ex-wife made, and of course she's jealous of the ex-wife, so (laughs) I'll just, just set up that way. If Kel had noticed she was always the first one to call time on their sessions, he hadn't let on. She spent her life being told she was chosen, but constantly needing people to prove it. With Kel, she didn't want to be confronted with the fact that this was a business relationship. She didn't want him pointing out that time was up and she had to leave. She'd rather leave of her own accord. It was like breaking up. She was always the first to call it over. As they were wrapping up, Kel asked her to fill in a questionnaire about how useful the session was and how close she felt to resolving her issues on a scale of one to ten. She didn't want to make Cal feel bad by giving him a low score, so she gave it an eight. But on instant reflection, she knew that was too optimistic. She definitely thought they'd made some progress, though. He invited her to his house, after all. When he turned to his filing drawer to return her file, she did something she had no idea she would do. She palmed X's glass marble. As he was turning to face her, she grabbed her bag as if she was looking for something, dropping the marble into her bag at the same time. She pulled out her bus pass and gave Cal an award-winning smile. When she left, he gave her a hug at the front door, a bit paternal, but still physical contact. She squeezed good and tight, but not sexy tight or needy tight, just, I appreciate you tight. She decided to walk. Cal lived in the east end of the city and she lived in the west. She walked down one of the city's busiest arteries, full of bars, restaurants, tire shops, love shops, you name it. The day had warmed up and she felt light on her feet. She considered whether she should text Cal to say thanks for today's session. She thought she probably would. She was feeling so good, she decided to stop at a familiar pub. It was only 4pm and the place was nearly deserted. She took a seat at the bar. She ordered a pint of beer and enjoyed the first cold swallow, anticipating the spread of warmth that would let her shoulders relax and eventually fill her with curiosity and cuteness. She fished out her phone to text Cal now, before she had too many drinks. Two things she'd learned to be careful about. One, she always lied to her counsellors about drinking. Some of them had their own hang-ups about alcohol and drugs, and she didn't want any of them confusing their issues with hers. The second thing she learned was, don't drunk text, drunk email, drunk Facebook, and so on. Best to get any follow-up text to Cal out of her system now, pre-drink. But before she had a chance to do that, she sensed someone occupy the bar stool next to hers. Next one's on me, said a familiar voice. She closed her eyes for just a second. Dana, oh my God, she said, as if she was not at all surprised. I was literally just talking about you. He looked confused. "'To my counselor, she said. "'All good things, I'm sure,' he laughed, "'as if they were a couple of corny business buddies "'out for happy hour, as if he wasn't really bad news, "'as if she wasn't still in love with him. "'Actually, I was saying how when I first met you, "'I wondered if your beard would give me razor burn. "'But afterwards, I realized I shouldn't have worried.' "'She laughed her spectacular laugh "'so he could remember what he'd been missing.' When the bartender came by, Dana ordered another round. The bartender plucked a new pint in front of Dan- in front of Ruby. Dana said, big head on that one. I don't mind a bit of head, she said, taking up her line like there had never been a break between them. You want to get out of this place, he asked. She diffused her laugh all over the bar. It's going to take a lot more than two beers to get me out of here, and I'll just leave it there.
0: Thank you so much for dropping us into, uh, that world and starting with Ruby and Cal, uh, is kind of where I wanted to, well, I have to ask you, like, what is your, um, relationship or experience to the world of counseling and therapy? Because there were, there were some parts of this with like Ruby's conversations with Cal and just the, um, sort of the ideas and, things that are running through her head where they're so specific to uh to the process of interrogating yourself in a certain way and like uh interrogating your experiences and the way that uh you have been moving through the world based on the things that have happened to you like I just felt like I was watching myself in therapy (laughs) (laughs) so so I would uh I would love to hear, um, and that kind of just goes into, like, my curiosity about where this story comes from, which a lot of it is based off of your experiences, um, so I'd love for you to give us a little bit of background there.
1: Yeah, I I think, okay, so, I mean, I sort of see Ruby approaching um, these ideas of, like, having a counselor or whatever, or I don't know, it's almost like she goes in there, <sighs> Like, it's like part of her wants to get help and and find something out. But the other part is almost like it's either combative or it's a challenge or it's, you know, it's some way for her to kind of, I don't know, assert herself or or something. Um, But she has this really bad habit of just, you know, forming crushes on her (laughs) counsellors. It's just really inappropriate all over the place. Um, I think for me, the story where it comes from you know, Ruby's story is the idea of, you know, what's the experience of Indigenous adoptees, um, particularly in Canada where we had this um, period of time, it was, it's sort of got this shorthand name called the 60s scoop, but what it really refers to is like the decades between about the 60s and the 90s when Indigenous kids were really targeted for, Um, being taken from their families of origin and assimilated into into non-Indigenous culture. And it's kind of an extension of residential schools, right? It's it's an extension of that assimilationist agenda that comes from, you know, colonization. Um, And so for me, I sat down, so I wrote a poetry book and that was published in 2016. And then I sat down and I really knew that I wanted to write fiction and I didn't know what I would write. And I was, I felt really stuck. Like I just, I said to my partner, I'm not even sure I have any more fiction left. I don't know what to do. And so I just started doing that cliched advice about write what you know. So I started to write about being Indigenous, being adopted And thinking really trying to be curious about that experience, not only from my own perspective, but from other other people's perspectives and stories and ideas and snippets of how they were framing that experience, which was sometimes different than my own, um, and then exploring that right. Uh, So I really got into, you know, I thought I was writing a short story collection. And then when I read it as a as a collection, as a group later, I realized that this character, the female characters across all of those stories sounded like the same person. And so then I realized that it was Ruby. I realized that was what I was writing. And then I still had to figure out who Ruby was, right, like as a character. And that took quite a while for me to really search and and sort of figure out who she was. And it was when I found Ruby's laugh, that great big laugh was when Ruby developed for me. Like Ruby could just, I just figured out who Ruby was and it just really moved forward like a freight train after that. So um, yeah, that's kind of, it's kind of the story of where Ruby came from.
0: (laughs) Well, and then you, you mentioned, you know, that it, it kind of started as a short story collection, which is a lot of what the structure of the um, the novel feels like. Um, but it also, it showcases the importance of um, sort of knowing the history of where you came from and which sometimes you can, people can expand on that when they're focusing on a character. But when you make those stories uh, or you showcase them from, everyone's individual perspectives. You get a much like more well-rounded idea of who Ruby is too by not just letting her tell you who these people in her family were um, and who came before her but letting or you telling us like from these people's individual perspectives from the times in which they were living. um, There's a really big ancestral thread that carries through this novel Um, and I'd love for you to to talk about like that choice and specifically to have each of these characters kind of stand on their own outside of their relationship to Ruby Mm -hmm.
1: yeah that was really important to me to have um, this multi-layered kind of a story where you have all of these other stories and perspectives from Ruby's history from her relationships in the world, um, from all kinds of different places where you get to sort of experience those stories and realize how they connect to Ruby's story and really how they are part of Ruby's history or part of Ruby's um, foundation. And there's, by the time you sort of layer all of these pieces together along with Ruby's story, what you get is, um, you get a picture of Ruby that's even broader than Ruby ever knows about herself. And it's so important, like for Ruby, family is everything, right? Like family, kinship, where she's come from, where does she belong? Like that idea of belonging, that's all just so critical for Ruby. And it it drives her in so many ways and sometimes even destructively. So she's got the, the, the boyfriend Dana who sort of keeps you know showing up or whatever but he he hooks her in because you know he says to her well I think I might know you look like somebody you know like you look like a certain family from a certain place and for Ruby who's never heard that in her whole life like she's grown up isolated and in a in a white family that she you know doesn't look like anybody And so then she um, hears this and that's just like, it's like a drug to her, right? Like it's so intoxicating um, and so important. And so I think I'm really trying to get that importance of kinship. And when I worked with um, one of the early editors on the book, we talked about, um, we talked about there's a drawing that that does show up in the front of the book that's ruby's relationship web and we talked about that and we talked about there's a cree concept called wakotuan and that's embodies that idea of relationships and relationality and kinship and how you know, how we are all related and in relationship, and so um, it became really important to me to have that relationship web in there, to have all of those different, you know, pieces and aspects of Ruby's story, and just also, I think, the structure of the book with all of the different um, pieces that you have to kind of put together yourself as a reader, um, that's almost like Ruby. Building her own narrative, right? Because she hasn't known her story and she hasn't had her story and she has to build it and she kind of almost has to keep rebuilding it because she thinks she's got it. She thinks she understands, you know, where she's come from, what her history is. And then someone will drop some other, you know, information on her and she's just like, you know, she doesn't even know what to do. She just laughs because it's like she's got to go back and re layer that narrative to make it make sense again for her. So, yeah. I think that's, that's the long answer to your question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, ancestry is long. It is. I love what you said about rebuilding it because sometimes you do get, you get a new piece of information and it drastically like shakes the foundation of what you thought you knew, but even more so when you like, maybe like Ruby don't really feel like you even have a foundation to begin with. So what does that then do to, like your whole entire concept of, of self um, and on that idea of not, like, not really having a lot of information to start with. Um, I wanted to, there's some beautiful parts of like trying to understand grief in this book, um, especially uh, around the idea of not knowing what you're even grieving um or not really being able to articulate it or understand it and then not knowing how to grieve for that either like absence of an idea or um or that thing that you don't even know and Ruby while she's trying to like I said interrogate herself like she wants to grieve like she feels like grieving would be something that is helpful for her but she doesn't know what to grieve or how to grieve um And that's something that I think is special about having this story be told from like an adult Ruby's perspective as someone who like has gone through the process of being adopted and like all of the experiences that she's gone through and then seeing like the aftermath of it and like what sits with someone who's been through a certain experience and how they have to try and deal with it in the everyday in these like what seem like normal social interactions and ways that you engage with people the way that something like that grief how it sits with you um so i'd love to to just hear a little bit about um your thoughts on grief or your ideas about grief and um like how how it feels to sit with it, um, especially in like a collective time of grief, too, on top of everyone's individual dealings with grief that a lot of people are never aware of. Like someone who met Ruby might not know that she was sitting with so much grief off the bat. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I think Ruby's story, you know, there's a lot of loss there, and there's a lot of vulnerability, but um you know, and it keeps popping up in different ways for Ruby. So, and and it's sort of unexpected for her because, uh, you know, she's she's sort of lost this uh, father off the page, right? Like it's it's not something she knows about until so much later. And so, how how does she grieve that loss? You know what I mean? That's that's part of the question. Um, and then she realizes, you know, later on, that she's had other losses in her younger life, like when she's a teenager, um, that she didn't allow herself to to grieve. And then she's surprised that this first kind of death, grief experience crops up again so much later in her life when her mother dies. and and so there's, yeah, there's a lot of um, different parts there, but I I like the way you put it also about her grieving what she didn't have, right? Like she's lost her, her, she's not lost. She's had it stripped away from her, right? Her culture, Mm her, her history, her family, her understanding, um, you know, that, and it's a lot,
0: it's a lot different. It's a different experience when it's not like it it's not lost it was taken from you Mm -hmm. by someone like there is someone to there is an actual person to blame uh or a group to blame for that kind of loss which adds another layer to it as well
1: yeah and I think she feels that acutely and I I sort of you know there's parts in the book where you see that that colonial history that touches all Indigenous people's lives, right? You see her grandmother and her grandfather in residential school, um, and then she herself is part of this this, uh, 60 scoop adoption type process that's very colonial um, and assimilationist in its intent. Um, And so you see all of those uh, impacts that are sort of part of Ruby's history and background, And yet, I really didn't want to be like focused on trauma, right? Like, there's so much Indigenous literature where you just don't want to be, it's so heavy. And so, I wanted Ruby to be this um, spirited character that had, you know, this real life to her. And that even though she's got that background and that history that informs, you know, all Indigenous people's history um I didn't want to I didn't want to dwell there I wanted Ruby to just be this like Ruby's not a victim right Ruby's a survivor Ruby is um not just about trauma Ruby is very much about you know making her own her own way her own mark her own uh destiny whatever that is creating her own story right um so I think that you know part of one thing that we talk about in in sort of Indigenous thought or whatever is the idea of blood memory. And so when I think about blood memory, I'm not really thinking about all of that trauma and all of that, you know, uh, colonial violence that sort of trails along behind us as Indigenous people. But I think about, you know, the positive aspects of blood memory that are about our, our culture and our um, ancestors and our kinship connections and our connections to land and language. So that's kind of how I want to see blood memory, as opposed to, you know, the the traumatic um, parts of it that, you know, apparently get embedded in our DNA and come forward with us from those past generations. But the other parts embedded in our DNA are, you know, the really positive kinship, you know, parts that go along with us as well.
0: Well, and on on that mention of kinship and culture and those those positive uh, elements of blood memory, I did want to talk about the two beautiful covers that I've seen of this book. The first is a beautiful, like close up, sort of cropped image of two people braiding each other's hair with like a beautiful red paint uh, stripe going across. Which, when you said the blood memory bit, like I saw a little bit of like a blood paintbrush, uh, with that bright red color and rubies, of course. Um, and then the other one is a beautiful beadwork, uh, cover. And I'd love to hear about, uh, those two, uh, cover designs and sort of how they came together. Cause they're so different, but both such beautiful, um, examples of that kinship and that culture that you're trying to explore here in in a different way than like a everything is about trauma because it's not. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. Um yeah, so those cut two cover, um
1: two cover um designs. So the one with the two women braiding each other's hair, that's a um that's art by a Canadian indigenous artist named uh Kelly Spitzer. And I it was really important to me to have an Indigenous artist. Uh, represented on the cover of the book and so um, the Canadian publisher worked really hard you know to help find an image that would be representative and be sort of perfect for that cover and I really appreciated the way um, that both publishers asked me you know how I saw this asked me what I wanted worked with me to make sure that I love the covers you know and that I want to um you know, take that book out there and promote it and show it off. And, and I do, Mm -hmm. I love them both Um, the American cover. uh, I also, they are really different covers, but um, that came about through a really great conversation that I had with the editor where we talked about um, just iconic Métis images and what that would look like. And so we talked about things like Métis sashes and Métis beadwork and the flower beadwork and the things that, you know, kind of represent metis people. And then um, Christy Belcourt's name came up. Christy Belcourt is a metis artist in Canada who's um, really well known and her art is really beautiful. <clears throat> and also I I am I work at the Gabriel Dumont Institute and so we are an educational institution, but we're also a cultural institution and so we have, Um, a large collection of Métis artwork, Métis artifacts, et cetera. And we have the largest collection of Christy the largest private collection of Christy Belcourt artwork in the world. So um, that, you know, I'm very familiar with Christy's work. And so David um, kind of went and, and got a hold of Christy and got permission to use her artwork. And it ended up on the cover of my book and it's just beautiful. It looks wonderful. She paints in this style that replicates Métis beadwork. And so uh-huh. um, we have some really large canvases of hers with that style of painting. And she drops she drops each drop of paint onto the canvas from a darning needle and just forms these Métis flower beadwork, wow. you know, and just expands from there. Um, and we have one, it's enormous. It's like I don't know, many, many feet wide and long. Uh, it doesn't fit through a doorway. Like you have to take it all apart. <laughs> so yeah, uh, her, her artwork's fantastic. It's really terrific. So I'm really honored to have it on the, the cover of my book.
0: That's amazing. I can't wait to look up more of her work um, because I that sounds so beautiful. I would love to see, like, does she have videos of that process? I would love to see that too. Like, I, I don't know. know possibly online. (laughs) uh, Yeah, Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to look into that. And then uh, you mentioned the, uh, the Gabriel Dumont Institute, where uh, you work and all the work that you're doing there. And I wanted to, uh, to sort of close us out by having you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing there. um, And also letting us know, some ways that we can support that work and ways that we can uh, either get involved or like I said, continue to support uh, the work that you're doing there for the renewal and development of Métis culture and, and studies.
1: One thing I will say about um, having my book published in the US is I'm really excited to bring that concept of who Métis people are, um, you know, sort of south of the border, because it's it's really a mostly Canadian concept, um, but it's, you know, it doesn't stop at the border. There are Métis people who um, did sort of disperse into Montana and the Dakotas, Um, But Métis people come from, you know, originate in the Red River area, which today uh, is Winnipeg, Manitoba, and then have dispersed, you know, all over all over the place, mostly across the prairies, um, you know, and down into the the northern United States. Um, And so the work of Gabriel Dumont Institute, uh, the Institute formed in 1980 and is really focused on. Uh, Métis culture and heritage and also Métis post-secondary education so taking those two components and combining them together um, so we are you know conservators of Métis culture but we're also um, providing you know those cultural experiences to our students and you know really um, when when Métis students are immersed in their culture and you know the culture is so respected and so um, available, then they that just that pride, you know, and that self esteem just builds in the students, and then academic success becomes that much more um, assured, right? Because you've got people who are really um, confident in their culture and and able to go out there. So we train we train a lot of teachers into the for the education system and they become you know just cultural experts that go into the schools and can be really confident about what they're doing um so that's some of the work we do the other thing that we do is we produce a lot of um materials a lot of books a lot of uh the metis language is machif so we produce a lot of books uh that are both have english and machif in them so that kids can you know learn the machif language um, Indigenous languages are are endangered, most of them. And so, you know, anything we can do to sort of um, bank the language, you know, and, and make sure we don't lose what it is, but also promote it, right, and and get it out there and get it into kids' hands. So those are some. That's some of the work we do. We actually do a lot of things, but that's a little. That's a little picture.
0: And then how can uh, how can we support the institute and in the work that you're doing?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, under understanding who Métis people are um, and what our history is, and that Métis doesn't just mean mixed, right, because there's a thought that uh, Métis people are just a little bit European and a little bit <laughs> Indigenous, and that's not really, that's not really the, the right definition. So I think just becoming a little bit educated, um, becoming interested in, you know, what's going on in the Métis world, look us up online, look up our resources, um, you know, teachers, teachers across Canada use the Métis resources from GDI in their classrooms, and you uh, you know gdi is is the world leader in producing machif resources. So um, yeah, just uh, things like that, I think, are
0: helpful. Everybody just needs to educate themselves. The world would be <laughs> the world would be such a better place if people would just educate themselves. and we're uh, we're so grateful that the GDI is doing all of this amazing work um, and that, Everyone in the u s. now and not just Canada, can read probably Ruby, which will be on our shelves at Skylight. Um, for all of our listeners, you can stop by and pick up a copy or you can grab one on our website. And again, my guest today was Lisa Bird Wilson, whose debut novel, probably Ruby, will be out in the world when you hear this. <laughs> Thanks again so much for listening and for joining us today, Lisa.
1: Thank you so much. This is wonderful.